Check, check. Hey, it's Jay. And here's something that I've just realized, which kind of ages me a little bit. Uh, my writing practice, like the personal motion and routine that I have of writing and publishing things on the internet. Yeah, that's an adult now. It's 18 years old. For 18 years, I have been writing at least one story a week and shipping it to the internet, mostly to nobody. If you were to analyze my body of work, mostly nobody has read the things I've written. And I actually think that's a good thing. I think we need to prioritize having a personal practice, having a side project, not necessarily a side hustle. If we're not going to practice, how are we going to get better? But anyways, my personal writing practice, yeah, it just it's, it's, it's heading off to college, and I'm very emotional about it today. But alongside my writing, I've also scripted, produced, and hosted hundreds of podcast episodes, dozens of videos, even a few documentary series episodes. I've also given speeches in 25 states and three countries, sometimes to thousands of people all at once. But across all of that, there are only really two habits that seem to have stayed with me and seem to matter, not just to me, but to everybody that we're talking to on this show. Number one, consistently collecting stories. Do you have observations and frustrations and questions? Sure. Do you document them? Maybe. You should. Do you write out scratch ideas and save them somewhere? Little story threads to pull later. Saving links and articles and episodes and films and books that you find. Data points and suggestions from other people. Are you consistently collecting stories to develop later? And then number two, do you have that routine, that practice, whether it's a newsletter, a podcast, a blog post, something else, on a deadline, you routinely learn to develop those ideas to deliver powerful, non-obvious insights, insights which resonate with the audience. This means that you learn to shape a story in a specific way. You're not just reporting what happened, but you're molding the story to convey a point. Turns out effective storytellers don't document meaningful stories, they imbue them with meaning. Now here's the thing. In all of this, it does require one stance, one emotional state you're always in. Are you sensitive to the world around you? I don't mean you see a dying flower and you start to cry. I mean you use your senses. You sense the world around you because everything can be inspiration. It's not that we need some monumental moment, some newsworthy or Hollywood-worthy action that happened to us. We don't even need any major achievements in our own lives or access to people who have those achievements. No, that's not where you find inspiration for great stories that can support our brands or our communities. The way forward, if you want to be an effective storyteller, is to treat everything as potential inspiration. Because in the hands of a storyteller, everything is inspiration. The problem is mostly we're not paying attention. Today, we talk about the process of paying attention and what to do when something makes you go, huh, maybe that's a thing. What happens after that moment of recognition, that moment of inspiration? To do that, we're going to dissect a signature story and hear about the process driving an individual whose work has helped millions of working professionals do their work better. And what we uncover is that if you want others to pay attention to you, you have to pay more attention. It's something crucial, but we can all do it. Keep, 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 keep it going. It's unthinkable how creators trust themselves, not conventional thinking. I'm Jay Akunzo, and I want more people to make things that matter. So every episode, we tell stories of people who made the leap between what best practices said they had to do and what their intuition was urging them to try. We can all choose to do that because as you hear every episode, it's only unthinkable until you hear their side of the story. And today's story is once more about a story. This is the final episode in our mini-series called Signature Stories, where we're going into the craft of coming up with and developing and using one key story to build our businesses and leave our legacies. So often, storytelling is taught as some kind of externalization, this process you have to follow or a structure that you have to fit to, or maybe you hire a consultant to re-engineer your homepage language. Well, what does any of this theory matter if you can't apply it? What is the best strategy behind your story 
actually matter if you yourself or your team can't carry these stories to market. There's a difference between learning story or buying story and actually being a storyteller. And that's what this series is all about. The process, yes, but mostly the practice and the posture of being an effective storyteller. And today's storyteller is Jay Bear. Jay is the author of seven business books, including his latest, which is called The Time to Win, How to Exceed Customers' Need for Speed. And that subtitle is just like, okay? All right. Jay has founded five multi-million dollar businesses and was named a Hall of Fame keynote speaker by the National Speakers Association. He's been interviewed by CNN, NPR, and the Washington Post, and away from the business world, he's now the number two most followed tequila teacher online today. Yeah, he's got a whole side business teaching you how to taste and shop for tequila. It's great. Jay's also advised brands like Caterpillar, Nike, IBM, and 32 of the Fortune 500. He has decades of experience across every creative medium you could possibly imagine of being a professional communicator, storyteller, and teacher. But I have never heard him sit down and dissect his approach to stories the way he does today. So please enjoy this look inside his process, practice, and posture, aka inside the mastery of the craft of Jay Bear. I've been meaning to ask you this question about your new book Mm -hmm. because I suspect this is somewhat hidden as you do the book tour and talk about it in different places, which is the fact that, of course, businesses should be caring about speed. And like the lazy assumption I have is, Oh, yeah, yeah. So the insight here is, hey, business owner, you should move faster, like full stop. I came out of tech startups and then and some big tech companies. And like when speed is discussed, it is about faster, 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 faster. I know that's not the insight that you were eager to explore or have found for us. Mm -hmm. So what was your perspective on this topic of speed and why did it need to be revisited to begin with when it is so popular? Well, I don't know if there's any business out there that is actually in business that doesn't care at all about speed and timeliness. It almost is a precursor to business survival. But what we found in the research is that for most businesses, speed is modestly important. For consumers, it is massively important. And so what I like to explain to business leaders is that you need to elevate speed on your list of priorities because your customers already have. When we look at the data and two thirds of customers say that speed is now as important as price, that rings very true to us when we're thinking about the world from a customer perspective. But from a business perspective, very few organizations actually run their business as if that data were true. However, Jay, it's really, really important to point out that my counsel is not to be as fast as you can at all times. There is a scenario in which you can be too fast. Speed at all costs actually costs your business. When you are too fast, it actually decays trust. Nobody wants to go to the fastest tattoo artist in Boston, right? There is a, <laughs> there's a scenario in which speed actually doesn't help you. It hurts you. So the real insight in the time to win is not that you should be faster, although you probably should be. The real insight is that for every customer interaction across the totality of the customer journey, there is a perfect amount of elapsed time. And that's what I call the right now. Mm. The right now is not too fast and it's certainly not too slow. And for every business in the world, they have a series of right nows. There's a top of the funnel right now. There's a bottom of the funnel right now. There's renewal right now. There's an invoice right now. And figuring out what that is, optimizing your responsiveness so that the customer feels treasured and respected is an absolute path to outperforming your competition. As you're laying that out, I'm thinking to myself, knowing the type of work that you do and the way that you think, at some point in that equation, so you're kind of laying out the point, laying out the big idea, you've done the research, I'm thinking, okay, so I'm gonna be on stages, I'm gonna be on podcasts, I'm gonna be writing and speaking and video and all these things and all the places you show up, Jay. 
I need stories for these. So I'm thinking, all right, there's actually such a thing as too fast. That's something we learned in the research. So that's a, even just a hypothesis before we net that out in the research. I got to find stories about that. <laughs> we, we, we're thinking about like speed is super, super important for customers, not important enough for businesses. I got to find stories about when it works and when it doesn't. Where in your process of developing this new IP of yours, are you trying to map and find and then map stories for all these different points? Is that last? Are you inspired first? Where, where does it fit? Actually, first. The story harvesting process is actually before even the research. Because to me, so much of what I do and how I communicate is rooted in story inherently, as you mentioned, that to me, if I don't already sort of have an unofficial basket of tales about a business premise, I won't even do the research to validate the premise and then do the book and then do the keynote. So for me, it starts with the stories and partially it's because... I'm in the habit of writing my newsletter and just doing other work. And so my own day-to-day -day life is fairly colorful and complex. And so I come into situations with great frequency where I'm like, well, that's a story I want to tell someday. And I just kind of <laughs> kind of log them either officially or unofficially. And then when I feel like, oh, there's there's a, a there there, then I do the research and then you know the, the, the whole process unfolds. However, I think we've talked about this in the past, uh, Jay, off offline, that I always write the the speech first and the book second. So I write the presentation, I go out and do the presentation 20, 30, 40, 50 times, and then get the stories polished and then and then write the book. I think it makes for better stories. But germane to your question, is that in those first X number of, of keynote presentations, what I always tell the audience is that this book is still being written. So if you have a story about a time that a business disappointed you because they were too slow, please come up to me after the talk. <laughs> and so almost all the stories that I've ever told on stage or on, or on the page are stories that the audience told me, which is why you won't see me talking about, I don't know, Amazon or Apple or something that that is just sort of a, a you know a, a white bread of of business authors. It's always like these weird, crazy businesses that no one's ever heard of. And some of them I found, some of them happened to me, but a lot of them people in the audience told me. And it is that like a posture of a comedian, really, is how I think about totally. this, right? Like you have the small comedy clubs, which for business speakers often not that small, often more lucrative too than being in a, a club late at night with 15 people, if that. But you have stages and you're pressure testing, aerating those ideas. At what point do you think, at what point do you commit or maybe make it specific with the the latest book, what time did you, or when did you commit to this idea of time and speed to then basically put on the goggles that go, okay, I'm exploring this. Therefore, I will see the world through that color goggle, through those lenses, yeah. and all the stories start to make sense or not. It's a filter system. When do you then go, okay, I'm not generally exploring, I'm focused? The go, no-go decision is always the same when the research comes back. I, I won't write a book unless the research tells me that the premise is true. Because I'm not going to stand up there and say, some guy says you should run your business this way because he thinks he's smart. I don't believe in that as an approach. So I have actually scuttled two, three years worth of work in the past because the research didn't validate my assumption. And that's my promise to the audience is that whatever I tell you, not only have I experienced it myself in my own life and with my own clients, but there's real university level, very expensive, very comprehensive research behind this. Having signature stories, signature bits, universal specifics that you speak to, and then having the body of work that you have moving across industries, moving across ideas and books over time. What has come with you the longest? What mm. signature bit or story continues to get the most consistent play through till today? I am a difficult case for this show because I do intentionally change topics about every three years. So I'm like a DJ for ideas. <laughs> and and somebody the other day I was on a show, they said, you're not a thought leader, you're a thoughts leader. 
because you don't talk about the same thing for your whole career. You talk about whatever you think businesses should do as a competitive advantage now. And then of course that changes. Like I, you know, I spent three years telling businesses they should do social media. Well, that's kind of axiomatic at this point, right? There's not really a speech to be given there. Uh, and, and so for me, I tend to change the story. The signature story tends to be contained within the three-year unit of measure and within that talk. Hmm. However, I will say that the signature story that we'll talk about today is probably the one that has persisted the longest because it's not topically specific. And it's the one that about 50 to 80% of the time I actually open with. Well, without further ado, then let's get into it. The signature story that you are hyping as, listen, this has been around in my bag for a long time. So no pressure, (laughs) Jay Bear, ladies and gentlemen. I am not a futurist. I'm not somebody who stands on a stage like this and has a crystal ball and can tell you what's going to happen in 10 years. I have no idea. I can tell you, however, what's going to happen today. And I've made a whole career out of that. I combine deep, comprehensive, proprietary research with my work on behalf of hundreds of different brands, including business leaders just like you, to figure out what is your competitive advantage in a two or three year period. However, what works today won't work tomorrow, and what works today wouldn't have worked three years ago. The world changes dramatically along your career trajectory. For example, I am deceptively youthful looking, but I started in what we now call the internet business or the digital business back when domain names were still free. You could get whatever .com, .net, .org you wanted and pay nothing for it. Because in those days, why would you want to have a website? What would you even do with a website? Why would you conceivably want your customers to be able to get a hold of you when you're closed? This was an actual train of thought. And my partners and I, in my very first internet company, realizing that domain names were free, we registered a number of dot-coms. One of those was Budweiser.com. And in 1993, Anheuser-Busch sent us a letter because email wasn't in use at the time. And they said, we want to build the very first website ever for Budweiser beer. And we are told that you children, which was not far from the truth because I was the senior partner at the ripe age of 23, you children have Budweiser.com. We would like it back. And we said, well, we're certainly not going to give it to you. We may be young, but we're not fools. And so we negotiated forwards and backwards, backwards and forwards, lawyer letters, conference calls. And in 1993, We sold Budweiser.com for 50 cases of beer. (laughs) In our defense, it actually said in a written legal document, bottles, not cans. Because, you know, you got to keep it classy. A short time later, uh, my partners had registered some domain names without me. They did it when I was on vacation. And again, none of this had any present value. So nobody really thought anything of it. I was on, on I was on vacations. So I wasn't on the paperwork. One of those domain names, my partner sold to Molson Brewing. It was beer.com, which he sold for $5.2 million and quickly retired. And here I am on the Business Storytelling Podcast <laughs> 30, 30 years later, still still working for a living. Oh, God. I've heard that live. I've heard that in person. I appreciate it so much more deeply. Uh, having seen it change context and even a little tweaks here and there. I actually, I want to try something with you, Jay. I have a, a question I want to start with, but then I have a, a new segment I want to introduce on the show called First Best Last, or First Last Best. I also have to figure out how to name it. First Last Best. But the question I like to ask people quite simply is, so you just told that story. How did it feel? It feels good to tell it because I know the story and I think it's kind of hilarious. It feels weird to tell it without an audience. Yes, I get that. You know, I think anybody who does this consistently, um, I shouldn't say everybody, 
most people who do this consistently for a living or partially for a living steal energy from the audience. That's the difference between professional speakers and other people. My wife, for example, is the exact opposite. Audiences steal energy from her, right? It's sort of the extrovert introvert. So I feel like I could do that story better mm. if people were watching. Your friend and mine, Ann Handley, has told me, because I've sat in the front row of many of her talks, that I am a, I'm a professional grade nodder. <laughs> She's like, I'm, I, make, I make really good eye contact and I nod with great intention to try, because I'm trying to provide- Coax it out, baby. Coax it the out. The energy, yes. And also this format has helped me do that because I can see myself yeah. on camera here while, and I'm trying to give you some kind of feedback loop, <laughs> even though there's no audience. So I really appreciate you saying that, Jay. So, okay, so that's how it felt. The, the new thing I want to try with people, because I think it's just so important to pinpoint these things in a story, is a segment called First, Last, Best. Let me just set it up really quick. Okay. There is this uh, psychological concept, or I guess there are two concepts that are connected, called the primacy and recency effects. And this suggests that the audience's memory of ours, of us, are formed most notably by the first and latest experiences with us. Right. So everyone talks about first impressions, but it's also what have you done for me lately or in a story? It's how you open, how you end, how you close. And I think if you look at podcasts as a great example, what are the weakest parts, especially in business content? The way people open, the way people close. Right. It's sort of we ramp up to the middle and then we weekly and meekly exit. Same with speeches, same with a lot of content. But I think what you're seeing in the amazing parade of amazing storytellers on this mini series so far is people have exceptional primacy and recency effect on people. They have great intros, great outros. So just to highlight and talk about what you did, and I'm curious as to why, primacy, the first thing you said, I am not a futurist. I can't tell you. Hold on. You're on a keynote stage, Jay. You're talking about the business world. Why are you discrediting yourself like that immediately? So why open that way? It all sets up the whole idea of the talk, which is this is the thing that you need to do now for the next two to three years to create a competitive moat that other people in your industry either can't or won't do. And so the first thing out of my mouth actually starts to set the stage for the fact that this isn't just something that you might want to consider doing someday. This is a thing that you very much should do now. Because if you don't start now, you are literally frittering away the competitive advantage. Now, I didn't always start the talk that way or that or the story mm. that way. But over the last few years, I've, I've found it to be a really good device to start to coax the audience into understanding that this is a premise that has an expiration date. What I find fascinating about that explanation is... I was hearing words like time. I was hearing words like the moment, right? Like you have customized that story, not just because of the action of the story getting clearer. Oh, this works and this doesn't work. But you're you're able to tie it to the current theme you're speaking about, your current IP mm -hmm. being speed and time, right? The right now. Right. It's not. It's much different than say I don't know uh, utility. One of your earliest books about being useful in your marketing. Like I'm sure there's another way you can take the same story and dovetail that right into that speech. Um, and, and so that, that's something I, I don't think people quite recognize is when you have a winning story or a winning bit, there is infinite use case and infinite insight you can pull out of it if only you pay attention to like the micro moments that work or don't. The other reason I, I start with deprecation is they just heard a flowery introduction of me. And so they're already like half eye roll. And there's going to be a point in the next 15 minutes where I start pretty aggressively asking them to change the priorities of their business. They've got to give me permission to take them on that journey. And I find, maybe it's just my personality, but I find that journey to be much more successful if they A, actually like me, and B, can I can identify with, with me as a serial entrepreneur who was also been through it and made mistakes and didn't capitalize on opportunities like a Budweiser.com domain name. Like, I just feel like you're already on a stage. You are literally on a pedestal mm -hmm. and whatever you can do to bring yourself to the audience's level, while it does make your challenge as a presenter slightly harder, 
I think the outcome is much, much better if you can, if you can get there. I do want to visit the end of that story, primacy and recency. So if that was the last interaction I had with you, or at least that's the last little moment with the story anyway, I'm thinking of that nice pregnant pause and then, and I am speaking to you today and I am still on the circuit and I am still working really, really hard as a way to, I took it as endear yourself to the audience and then start that journey. That's how I interpreted that ending piece. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's the intention. And then we go right into uh, the the sort of first set piece of of the talk, right? It's like, okay, we're all friends now. I don't feel like I am holier than thou or smarter than thou or better than thou. I'm just an entrepreneur talking to a bunch of other business leaders. Let's get into it. Bang. And then off to the races. So I mentioned this, this piece of the chat here is first, last, best. Best is so subjective. I don't think it objectively exists. I can't be like, pull up your statistics. Who hit the most threes? Oh, it's Steph Curry. I'm saying who's the best shooter. And some people disagree that it's Steph Curry. So this is a, a supremely subjective question. But of that story, in that story, what do you deem as the best moment in that story? I think the best moment is the reveal. When I do the long pause and I say 50 and then the long, 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 long pause and then say cases of beer, <laughs> because people don't actually know what I'm going to say. Right. They they think $50,000 is, is usually what they think because uh, I've asked people, but they don't see it coming. And so the, and it's actually it's sort of a Tig Notaro, uh, comedian strategy, right? The longer you hold that beat and I like to hold it long enough where people start to think, did he forget the line, right? Where they're, they're just, they're not sure, like it's just slightly awkward and then deliver the line. It works every time. Right. And, and I, I thought that maybe it would only work in certain rooms or certain scenarios, but it's proven to work <laughs> every single time. The first time I saw you give that live, I can't remember where it was, but I do remember trying to be a step ahead of you. And I'm sure even non-storytellers sure, are yeah, trying. That's the idea. Yep, that's, yeah. that's the idea is okay. 50. He's going to say, well, million wouldn't make it a good story. And clearly it's not that. So like, cause you wouldn't be wearing plaid suits if you want that. 50 <laughs> exactly, that exactly. Just kidding. It's a better uh, suit. Better suit. Uh, all right. So it's not million. And then I'm going thousand like, oh, okay, does that land the story? Well, no. Oh, he's going to say 50 pause, pause, pause dollars. And then it's like laughable. Look how little the payout was. And, and the reveal is much stronger, which is it wasn't even in dollars. My friend, it was yeah, cases product of beer. product. Yeah. What I found, this is my take on the best bit. I'm going to take it one step forward. For me personally, again, it's a subjective thing to ask. It wasn't pause, 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 cases of beer. It was, and there was actually language that says bottles, not cans, because that's what comedians would call a tag, where yeah. you have the punchline, which is the reveal that it was product, not dollars. But the tag is when you add a line, add an acknowledgement, add a little bit of something, literally tag the punchline, tag the joke to get the extra laugh. Is that, I mean, I want to, I want people to know in comedy, comedians are actually intentional about that. Absolutely. Like, was that an improvised line way back when? And now you kept it. I would say 75 to 80% of anything I ever say on stage started as improvised. And that's why I've never given the same talk twice. Um, so every single talk, I'm I'm either purposely or accidentally trying different things. I'll throw something in or phrase it differently. And then you just read the room and say, okay, keep it or dump it, keep it or dump it, right? So it's, it's this constant process of innovation, optimization. So I have no idea when I started with that tag, but it is true. It's factually true. That is literally what happened. Uh, and I just, you know, one point, I don't even know why I said, oh, and by the way, you know, the part you really won't believe is we actually had in the contract bottles, not cans, and it got a big reaction. So it stayed in. Right. So, you know, you just, you, you have to audition every, every line. Now, the part that's frustrating, I'm not as diligent as our mutual friend, Drew Davis, who records every one of his talks and goes back and catalogs them and is probably using AI to build a robot version of himself or something like that. <laughs> What's what's frustrating is I know there's times where I had some great little turn or story or callback or or tag and then I forgot what it was and it's gone now I don't you know I've, I've lost it to to the ether so I should probably do a better job of keeping track of that stuff than I do. Pivoting slightly here, when I was a kid, 
we used to have an annual Akunzo family ping pong tournament in my grandmother and grandparents, uh, grandfather's basement. There was video footage of me with a homemade sign and my cousins. Now I was the oldest, so I was definitely the ringleader in causing this. We were basically, we had the sign ESPN3. By the way, that became briefly a real thing and then it went away. But Indeed. we had ESPN3 and we were announcing the family tournament, including having my tinier, smaller cousins who had less command of the English language try and interview my family members. And then I was on the anchor desk and all that. <laughs> stuff. So there is proof that I was going to do something looking like the work that I do now. There, There is proof. You are a speaker. You host podcasts. You do tons of videos. I also know deep within you, you want to host a game show as a dream job. True enough. Any proof documented or otherwise that this started for you as a kid or did it come later? It's so, it's so weird. I have an, a unique career in that I didn't give a paid presentation until I was 40 years old, which is really unusual in, in this business. However, I was named most likely to be a game show host in high school. So there is some <laughs> documented evidence. I was always the one, even when I was like a sophomore, right? Usually the upperclassmen would get this assignment. They'd be, hey, somebody needs to host the talent show. Oh, that bear kid will do it. He's not scared of anything, right? And and so, I, you know, I was never um, freaked out in the least about addressing crowds of any size. It just never struck me as something that you should be uncertain about. My parents were very uh, verbal and loquacious. My mom's a teacher. My dad is an entrepreneur. And and so I sort of grew up in that culture a little bit. My my uh, aunt, my dad's sister, uh, was a very successful corporate trainer. So sort of one step removed from the kind of work I do as a speaker. So I, I knew that there was um, a life out there that that people did that. But I never really conceptualized doing presentations for money until I was you know certainly mid-career or later. You, you've told me some of your influences in the industry, Mark Sharonbrock being one of those people. Mm -hmm. Who would you say you pick up on bits and pieces, even if distantly, inside of your work now from outside of our industry? Like, are, is there, is there, I mean, sticking with game show hosts, are you like, there's a little Bob Barker in me or a little Pat Sajak <laughs> or somebody, you know, or is there somebody yeah. else? Well, as you know, I secretly want to murder Drew Carey and take his job. <laughs> you got um, the glasses already. You got to yeah, start. I don't. I don't wish any ill will on the man, but uh, <laughs> the, if the Price is Right uh, job comes open, I'm definitely going after it. Uh, you know, for me and you and I have talked about this. I I I study stand up quite a bit. I go to a lot of stand up. I watch a lot of stand up. The way they control crowds and and use language and just different approaches to it. Some are very very studied at almost the comma level of the sentence. Others are a little looser style. I, I spend a lot of time looking at that. I, I also feel like there are some more generalized business authors that the way they tell stories is, is an interesting jumping off point. I mean, I think it's an obvious reference for a lot of people, but the way Gladwell takes takes different concepts and says, here's a story, here's a story, here's a story, and here's how these all tie together. Uh, I try to mimic that a little bit. My favorite writer and the way I try to use language is Bill Bryson. I feel like hmm. the way he turns phrases uh, in in his travel logs, in particular, is really special, and the use of metaphor and simile are some things that I try to adopt as well. That last point is something that I really want to get into because I feel like business, and maybe you have a comment on this, but business authors, speakers, even executives, pe people who are not like I'm a full time storyteller. So basically, everybody in business who's communicating who needs to master this craft better. Because if you show up as a better storyteller, you show up better, period. I believe that. But people who are not full-time professionals at this in the business world tend to get stuck on illustration, like the case study style of storytelling. In other words, like unless I've done the thing my customer is trying to do one-to-one, -one, apples to apples, I, I don't know what stories to tell. Or unless I'm interviewing an expert that looks like my customer, has the job title of my customer, it, it's really hard. And then I hear folks like yourself people outside of the business world. And there's so much metaphor, simile, allegory, non-literal ways of teaching that cause the insight to stick. And I don't know if that's something you've observed or tried to attack at all, but it's something that I just can't, I can't tolerate it anymore. I need, I need less literal storytelling. <laughs> when it comes to business, people tend to self-edit and manipulate their communication modality because they're trying to they're they're trying to do business, <laughs> and it's the same way with writing. I, I used to 
manage a lot of young professionals in my consulting firms. And invariably, we were bringing them onto the team and they're very smart and sharp and have tremendous amount of, of raw skills. But then when it came down to writing documents for clients, for example, the language was so stilted and and stiff and, and just devoid of the actual humor and insight that I knew they possessed and that they would freely communicate when you were addressing them verbally. It's like the assignment of having to write a document for a client, like sucked all the life out of their communication. And I think the same thing is true with business storytelling. They, they say, well, it has to be a, a story about business. No, it doesn't. It has to be a story about this industry. No, it doesn't. It has to be a story that happened to me. No, it doesn't. Here's what it needs to be. A story that the people who are listening can understand and benefit from. Full stop. That is the entire list of ingredients necessary. And that gives you a tremendous amount of leeway. And I will say this though, Jay, over time, the same way that the plaid suits I wear on stage have gotten crazier over time as you get more, <laughs> you're like, well, nobody's, nobody's pushed back yet. So I'll go with orange <laughs> next time. So the, the suits get crazier and the stories get looser. Because just like anything else, right, once you're like, oh, well, if they'll tolerate this story, they'll definitely tolerate the next level of of allegory or simile or metaphor. So you just get more comfortable not having to be like, well, this is a, a conference of automotive dealers. So every story has to be about the car business. It's like, well, if they wanted that, they just hire somebody from their industry. <laughs> There's something so hand in hand that I've found. I, I wonder if you see this, too. The more influential a person gets, the less literal they tend to communicate it. Like the less case study type speaker, writer, blogger, podcaster, whatever they become. Absolutely. Partially it's just because you get that comfort level, almost the permission from the audience to, to have sort of higher level insights. And then I think also not for nothing over time, as you do it more and you have more experiences and you work with more types of different organizations and different scenarios, you just naturally get exposed to more through lines that are sort of woven across the totality of the economy or across all different sectors. And look, as, a, as somebody who was a, a strategist for 30 years and, and a speaker for 13, like that's invaluable experience. I mean, I, I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of major brands across almost every type of business that there is, period. To me, that's what actually helps is that I've seen all these questions get answered for all these different types of companies, then the trick is just saying, okay, now what's the, what's the principle that applies universally or nearly universally? That, that leads me to a phrase that I like to tell people about. It started with me having this, the perspective of a speaker and then you know, extending that to other projects, other types of job functions in the business world. I, the phrase I use is, is universal specific because I'll never forget I had the first time I gave a speech outside of the marketing world was to a group of uh, it was either dentistry or HVAC. I can't quite remember, but I just knew thinking like, I was like, I've experienced your work. I've been a customer of yours. I have no idea what you do and how the hell am I going to speak to you? And afterward, you know, and I consulted some great mentors of mine and I felt decently confident. And I, I think I delivered because I remember this one guy came up to me and he was like, Jay, he's like, I heard your bio. And like, you came out of these tech companies and stuff that I didn't realize you also worked for like an HVAC company. I was like, I've never worked for, and he goes, but everything you were saying was like so perfectly on the nose for what I was thinking. And I was like, oh, this is the job. Like it is to figure out how to put my finger on a universal specific. I don't know if that resonates with your experience. I imagine it does. Oh, it sure does. And it's, it's actually in some ways, I think the greatest compliment that you can get. Uh, well, I should say it's the second greatest compliment you can get as a, as a presenter. The best compliment is that somebody actually takes your advice and changes their business and their life accordingly. Or the AV team likes your talk. I think that's a big win too. <laughs> yeah, that's that's third. That's third. Um, yeah. First is they actually do it, uh, what you said. Second is when somebody says, it it felt like you had been in our conference room for the last six months. Mm. Right. That, that, that it was that resonant. Like, this is exactly the kind of stuff we've been saying. Thank you. Da, da, da. And then number three is the AV team's like, wow, I learned a lot from that. Because <laughs> they, they've seen a million talks and they're so checked out by the. Yeah. They've seen yeah. them all. They've yeah. seen them all. All 
right, so let's take this off the stage. So someone is thinking, this is all awesome for people who give speeches on a regular basis, but I don't. But I've heard you say things like, well, you know, you're kind of, I don't know if you use this actual term, but aerating your ideas, like putting it in front of people, pressure testing, et cetera. That happens away from the stage. So how do you use a story like this when not in your talk? Or if you don't, just speak to us a little bit about the power of having signature stories or signature bits if you're not giving a ton of talks every year. Well, I, I sort of feel like you've got to have signature stories and signature bits to even be an interesting person, right? It, it doesn't matter if you're if you're in a mm. conference room or you're waiting in <laughs> line at the DMV or you're at Applebee's or you know, like you're on Hinge or I mean, like you know, every every everything that you want <laughs> in life will have a better chance of being accrued by you if you can actually communicate with powerful and interesting stories, right? There's a reason why people who tell jokes well or can tell interesting stories have a crowd of people around them at parties. That's not an accident, right? That's physiology. People like to laugh. They like to be interested. You can be interesting. You can make people laugh as well. What I find people say, oh, I'm not funny. Or I'm not good at telling stories. No, that's crap. That's not true. You just haven't given yourself permission to tell stories. Everybody's a storyteller. Is it a learned skill? Yeah, at some level, but but you know, you you can learn it, right? You can get better at it. And there are some people who are sort of naturally more comfortable with it. I don't know if they're naturally better at it. Does that make sense? Like, like I don't I don't know that that you're a born storyteller. I think you can be born to be comfortable giving telling stories, but you can and should get a lot better at it. So absolutely like the the Budweiser.com story, while I most often tell it holding a microphone. I have told that story in a tremendous number of contexts, right? I've told it in, in you know, we were just talking about somebody's, you know, previous jobs. Like, oh, I've got one for you. This is how crazy my job used to be. Or, or you know, just with a client, right? It's like, okay, new client talking about how long we've been in business, right? So you you have to think about the stories that you have and then what does that story say? Because the lesson, the tale, the the premise, the point of the story, if it's a good story, is usually not so obvious. We talked about this earlier, right? The linear business storytelling. If the point of the story is so patently obvious, it's probably not a very good story. In fact, there's probably an inverse relationship between the concrete point and how enjoyable the story is. And so what good storytellers do is they, A, train themselves to collect stories, and then B, train themselves to be able to take a story and then in the last sentence, essentially say, so the point and how this applies in this situation is this. So the Budweiser story right now, I use as a way to talk about, you know, changing business trends, et cetera. But I could take that same story and draw four or five different conclusions out of the same story, just depending on the context and the circumstance. The, um, there's so many directions I want to take this, uh, so I'm, I need to convince you offline to just let's just host the show forever uh, together because <laughs> there's just way too many things for even like seven hours of conversation here, Jay. But I do think there's one one thing that looms largest to me. There's a paradox when you tell stories about trying to connect with the audience. The paradox is to connect deeper externally. You have to go deeper internally. If you go deeper internally, you inevitably push past what happened in the story and you arrive at the emotional stakes of the story, the meaning of the story, the lesson of the story. So to go, to connect deeper externally, you have to go deeper internally. Well, I think the mistake a lot of people make, and it's probably more true offstage than onstage, is they they start with the story and then try to shoehorn in the lesson. And it's like, well, this is the story I always tell. Mm. And you're like, well, that story is not actually doesn't actually make sense in this context. Well, that's the story they always tell or whatever, right? And, you know, we all have the grandfather who tells the same story yeah. every time. And it's like the, it's like the, you know, the Swiss army knife of stories. And it's like, that doesn't, that's doesn't make any sense at all in this context. <laughs> Instead of saying, okay, now what's the actual lesson or point that I'm trying to make? And then let me look into my mental Rolodex of stories and then figure out which one is is the best fit for this job. Yes. So I actually have a database of stories 
and they're broken down and tagged by speech. So like by which sort of big picture topic um, potentially, but some of the stories work across multiple different talks. And then they're categorized by big company, small company, B2B, B2C, by industry, and by US versus Canada versus international. So for any individual story, I can just look Hmm. it up and say, all right, I want to talk about empathy in business. And it would be better if it was a larger company. Uh, Doesn't matter if it's US or international. Clickety-clackety, clickety-boom, here's this one, right? Uh, and, and I've been doing that for well over a decade and, and you started, you know, you just keep adding more stories to it. And, and eventually, you know, sometimes you're like, oh yeah, that, that, I forgot that one. It's like, it's like seeing an old friend again. Right. And sometimes I, I'll slip in an old one into a presentation just cause I haven't told that story in a long time. And it's like, it's just fun for me. So here we've unearthed three things then that takes it off the stage for people. So one is the ability we have when we have a signature story to speak to communicate anywhere with greater impact, greater interestingness. People want to surround themselves with storytellers, joke tellers, et cetera. So by aerating a story everywhere we show up, even if you never take it onto a stage because that's not what you do, you are communicating with greater impact. Um, The second is this modular way of communicating, which you just described, where you have the talk and then it's like, okay, this audience, I know the thing I'm trying to say, I know I'm exploring this big topic, but I can unplug this story for this crowd and plug in a more relevant story for that crowd. And so you speak in a modular fashion. That can happen in your writing. That can happen in your podcast. That can happen everywhere, not just on a stage. And I think the third one is that hidden point of like, these stories are meant to connect through their emotional stakes. And like Ted Lasso's about soccer or football. I don't care about that sport. It's a story about kindness and human evolution. Like how do you evolve and remain true to your values? Stephen King and all his rabid fans. Carrie is about isolation, which is very relatable. Uh, Spider-Man, very obvious example. It's there's something cool and voyeuristic to like see a superhero, right? But do you have spider powers? Can you whip through Manhattan? Like, no. So what is it actually about? With great power comes great responsibility. So it's about that connection on the emotional stakes. So again, you can aerate your ideas all around your own platform. You don't have to have a physical platform you stand on in a stage. You can uh, communicate in modular fashion and know, okay, if I'm going to teach this, how can I insert a story at this right moment so that I teach it in a way that sticks? And then you can also ensure that you go further towards the emotional stakes because whatever you're talking about almost doesn't matter. The topic of the story doesn't matter as much as those emotional stakes because that's where people connect. And I think the foundational work that folks have to do if they want to be better storytellers is to just be more aware of their surroundings and that everything is potentially a story. When you don't do this a lot, you tend to think that a story I would tell to a client (laughs) or a story I would tell on stage has to be like some kind of Greek tragedy (laughs) with like all kinds of crazy stuff that happened. And it's like many of the most successful signature stories that professional speakers tell on stage are really prosaic. Like it's like I went to McDonald's and they gave me free breakfast. Uh Uh-huh. That's not like being hit by Sputnik, right? That's just like I got like $6 worth of Egg McMuffins. (laughs) But it's A, the way you tell it, and B, the way you connect it to the audience, whether that audience is your spouse or your business partner or your potential client or your kid or an audience, it doesn't matter. It's how you can connect the story to the needs of the listener. But the first piece of work you have to do is to understand that almost everything that happens to you every day is potentially a story. You just have to give yourself permission to tell it. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was written and edited by me with production support from Alana Nevins. Of course, big thanks to Jay. His book is The Time to Win. And you can go to thetimetowin.com for all kinds of free resources, including all the research he hinted at. It's free and ungated to get the research and associated findings and infographics. That's thetimetowin.com. What you don't see about my work is just how much people who came before me 
continue to pave a path for me and, and how badly I want to do the same for others. Maybe that means you. Lots of these people have different styles, different stories, different areas of focus or expertise. But the most important thing is that when I interact with them behind closed doors or text them or share a drink with them, they have always, always been generous with me and supported me and helped me get here. That's people like Jay Bear and Andrew Davis, Ann Handley, Joe Polizzi, Robert Rose, Doug Kessler, Michelle Warner, Michael Barber, Sarah Stockdale, Melanie Diesel, and so many others. I'm taking a break from Unthinkable for a time. I'm going to focus on other projects and at least in the near term, better enjoy the holidays with my family, but don't unsubscribe. You will hear from me again in 2024. There's a lot more coming soon. But in the spirit of this sign-off, I have just two things to say to you. Number one, please keep in touch during my hiatus in an ongoing way by subscribing to my newsletter. Every other week, I'll continue to publish one story and framework for becoming a stronger storyteller because I want so badly for smart experts to become the influential voices they deserve to be in this world overflowing with sameness and hollow noise. That newsletter is all about resonance. You can subscribe at jayakunzo.com or check your show notes for a link. And number two, please remember to thank the storytellers in your life, the people who teach and inspire you through their words, whether you interact with them in person or simply through their work. Storytellers move the world and they make this life we have so much more rich and meaningful to us all. So we ought to do everything in our power to celebrate them, to share them. And if you're like me, you can lend your skills and your platform to support them. So thank you for supporting me, which you've done just by listening this far. And I can't wait for what's next here in the podcast feed and also elsewhere. I'll have more to share with you soon. But no matter what else you do, keep making what matters. See ya.